državljandi podcast za aktivne državljane Welcome audience uh, to yet another uh, international episode of uh, Citizen D podcast uh, we seem to be having a lot of these uh, international uh, conversations recently and uh, this is a special edition because we're not publishing it on on the 15th but we're we're jumping ahead the reason being uh, Petra Molnar and Kenya Jade Pinto just came back from from Greece they 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 were on Lesbos Island uh, they weren't on vacation this is not a travelog podcast they were researching the the influence of um, or the development of surveillance tech and the refugee crisis brewing in Greece uh, so welcome Petra welcome Kenya Um, uh, Petra is a is a lawyer and researcher specializing in migration technology and human rights and and Kenya is a documentary photographer who is or still is uh, preparing a documentary based on the research that was uh, happening in in uh, in Moria on on Lesbos Island so uh, my question for you Petra would be uh, can you introduce the project to us or can you explain what were you two doing there? <laughs> great. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure to, to be on your great podcast. Um, and, and also it's, it's such a wonderful opportunity for us to talk about our work because we really just came back three days ago. We are in Athens now trying to kind of wrap our minds around what we saw on Lesbos. But maybe what I can do is set the stage a bit and tell you about how This particular field visit fits into our broader project mapping out migration management technologies and their human rights impacts on people who are on the move. Mm. So we're working with a coalition of a variety of groups and individuals. Um, we're trying to basically spin out a longer term project um, that will be a hub for this kind of work. And Greece is one of the case studies that we have been looking at. Um, you know, pre-COVID, we had these really, really ambitious plans of doing a comparator study between different countries, and that will hopefully still happen. But for now, we decided to focus on Greece, particularly because of our community partners here, but also because it's a, a testing ground or a sandbox for a lot of migration policy, but also for tech um, development. So. We are really at the early stages of this project, um, but Kenya Jade and I went down to Moria after the fire. Mm -hmm. We were a bit conflicted about it, you know, because we didn't want to be seen as extractive or in the way or taking up space from, you know, people who are locally working on the ground and other journalists and, and people like that. But we felt it was a, a really unique and important opportunity to document basically the birth of a new detention center um, camp and just kind of the refugee warehousing policies that are once again in vogue. I guess they were always in vogue. They never really went away. Um, mm. So we went to talk to people who are working on migration and surveillance and um, the kind of containment policies that we're seeing on the Greek islands and also just to get a sense of, you know, what the situation is like on the ground. Mm. And this will form one of the case studies in, in this broader project. Um, but it was definitely a really, really important time to be there because the situation really is quite horrific. Mm. And it will continue to be horrific from the humanitarian perspective. But the concern also is, is that the situation is really ripe for 
all sorts of rollout of different technologies, whether you know surveillance or biometrics or, or things like that. Um, particularly given yesterday's release also of the European Commission's Pact on Migration, which mm -hmm. essentially doubles down Europe's um, border containment and enforcement policies. So it's, if anything, it actually re-entrenches a lot of the ideas that we are looking at. And we're hoping that this will be kind of an inroad into this, this bigger piece of analysis from a systemic perspective. Mm. Okay, uh, thank you, Petra. And, and a question for Kenya. Uh, so documentaries are, are mostly, or one of the key elements of a good documentary is the visual material. So what would you say are some, uh, let's say visual um, visual emphasis that are um, that you remember most from from your visit or that uh, impact you the most while while you were there yeah I think that's a really good question um, you know one anecdote I could share is that as part of our research we were um, we were able to to enter the camp with a group of journalists and sort of see um, you know what that what the space is like now as it sort of transitions and uh, it was quite disturbing I think um, I can say that for both of us just to see how how it's been set up so far one of the things we wanted to be really mindful of though is you know we're not necessarily here to document human suffering although we know it's happening and we can see it all around us and so the, the tension in, in bringing up the visuals on this project is, is going to be like preserving the, the, dignity, the human dignity of the story while having it also be a very character-driven story. Um, those two things are, you know, so, sometimes difficult to do at the same time. Mm. But we're really hopeful about, about being in space at this moment in time because we felt like, you know, as Petra said, we didn't want to take up too much space. So we didn't want to go in there and, and stick cameras in people's faces and ask them tough questions about how hard things are right now. We know that's true. Mm. Um, and so I think it's really going to be a long-term sort of taking it slow and really thinking about the visual elements as we move along. Mm. Um, I don't know if that answers your question very clearly, but oh. I think it, you know, the answer is it's going to take a while for us to sort of really think through what what we'll see on camera because mm. uh, I, I, I'm trying to connect uh, my my train of thought in a way and and another or the second question for Petra would be what are some um, let's say you you also already mentioned that uh, that um, uh, camps that refugee camps that Greece is basically a, a testing lab for uh, for the surveillance technology that is then being you know, re-imported into into less chaotic societies and uh, my first question for Kenya was basically to to set up a, a stage in a way to um, to discuss you know the framing of the debate uh, on the topic of surveillance refugees and technology because we often see these topics being in a way stereotype with also with you know framed images or framed uh, videos that, that we are used to and are in a way there to, to establish like a stereotype. Okay, a refugee camp looks like this, a surveillance technology looks like this, and then you, you don't see any, any difference or any special development, you know, 
in different stories, all the stories are basically framed in, let's say, the same way. Um, so, so to to uh, to shorten up uh, the the second question for Petra, uh, you you often talk about in your in your texts and on your analysis that you know the the refugee um, camps are are a testing ground for surveillance technology, and I was wondering if you could if you could expand on on that uh, statement. Sure, sure. I mean that that's. That kind of framing is something that we're trying to weave throughout um, the entirety of this project because, you know, it, it this whole thing started off with with looking at how Canada has been using automated decision making in a variety of immigration applications and using kind of, you know, immigrants and refugees as a laboratory for high risk tech experiments. But when you look at it internationally, you know, we're seeing all sorts of different tech first being rolled out in, you know, humanitarian zones, refugee camps and places like that. Things like, you know, biometrics and iris scanning or um, AI lie detectors at the border. And the idea I think sometimes is, is that the state is able to rationalize bringing in new technology, testing it on communities that are made marginalized and maybe communities that have access to fewer mechanisms of legal redress or even knowledge about what is happening right or the ability to fight against it because if your immigration or refugee application is contingent on you participating in a particular technological system your ability to opt out is very limited mm. or even in situations like you know humanitarian uses of technology and looking at things like iris scanning you know oftentimes that's presented as a way to increase efficiency and give people access to identity and and you know Instead of having a cash card, you can have your iris scanned. Sounds great, but the problem is that when you look at it from a systems perspective and to try and understand, you know, how power operates in those kind of settings, you know, what does meaningful participatory consent look like? And can you opt out, right? If you don't have your irises scanned, you don't eat. That's mm. not really informed consent. Mm. So I think it's really important to look at these spaces from a contextual perspective and see how the tech is playing out along these kind of lines of power. And unfortunately, what we're seeing time and time again is that migration spaces, border spaces, are this kind of sandbox or this laboratory for tech experiments. And it also maps onto, you know, to bring it back to the EU context, mm. Europe has been very good at externalizing its borders through a variety of means, right? Whether you're looking at maritime pushbacks mm -hmm. or, you know, warehousing of refugees on island camps close to the EU border or even further afield looking at, you know, the rollout of surveillance tech in places like sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the kind of tendrils of this policy are really, really far reaching. And again, it, it plays up into this idea that we can experiment on communities over there because again, their mechanisms of address are few and far between. Mm -hmm. um, policymakers and I think the tech community is able to rationalize this and you know just to broaden this out a little bit it's not just about migration as well right like we're seeing this kind of tech experimentation happen in the criminal justice sector with predictive policing um, all sorts of I don't know social welfare applications you know it's, it's always the same communities that are kind of at the forefront of this experimentation mm. Mm. and sometimes it gets rolled out on the water population as well right there was the Bureau of Investigative Journalism in the UK did a really interesting study a few months back where they were basically linking um, the kind of population prediction models that were built on refugee and forced migration situations and how 
those predictive analytics were now making their way into COVID tracking. Mm. So this kind of cross-fertilization that happens in the use of tech is really troubling because oftentimes it starts in these opaque spaces like migration and borders and then gets rolled out into further applications down the line. Mm. Following up on, on that, I, I mean, since you just made a connection between refugees and migration and, and the COVID epidemic, is uh, I'm very curious in, in hearing your thoughts on, um, you know, on the, on the techno-determinism that has plagued, you know, the, the discussion around, uh, around uh, COVID epidemic since, since the beginning, right? And it's basically an echo of the debates we've had for, for a very long time where, you know, if you boil it down, you, we basically are constantly saying social problems will be solved by technology. And we, we are still waiting for that success story where, where a technology has solved maybe say more problems than it caused, you know, in a, in a society. So I was wondering if you could, if you could expand on, on your point of, uh, of view you know, comparing techno-determinism and, uh, or solutionism and uh, the COVID epidemic. Mm, yeah, that's such an important uh, point. I mean, this kind of techno-solutionism and this obsession with these band-aid solutions for really complex problems, like forced migration or a pandemic. I mean, it's just interesting how the framing around that gets put out, right? It's like, if, mm. if we think about this from a tech perspective, somehow we're going to be able to solve this crisis, right? But like you said, oftentimes these techno-solutionist tendencies really are either a band-aid solution or they actually obfuscate a lot of the ways that, you know, our world deals with inequality or the fact that, you know, the pandemic, for example, is experienced by many different groups in many different ways, right? Privilege mm. and pandemics go together very well, just like privilege and technology. Mm. Um, different swaths of society are able to benefit from, you know, um, all the fun things that we now have, while others are surveilled and policed. And the concern is that the pandemic will legitimize a lot of this. Now, mm. I'm not saying, you know, that we shouldn't be thinking creatively about stopping this global crisis, obviously, but not at the expense of, you know, normalizing or inculcating new technologies that are going to exacerbate inequality, discrimination, you know, privacy as well. But I think it's important to move the conversation beyond privacy because there's also all sorts of other issues that, you know, this technology touches upon. But in our work, absolutely, I mean, with with the COVID kind of techno-solutionism, I think we're all quite concerned that it's going to be, or it has already been used as a way to legitimize more surveillance, particularly against communities that are made marginalized, so migrants, people crossing borders and the like. Um, and we already know that there's really damaging discourses around for decades, probably centuries, right? Linking immigrants, refugees with disease, bringing in illness, mm. you know, all sorts of, um, you know, leaders out there, whether you look at Venezuela or Hungary, have explicitly in the media said, you know, refugees bring in disease. Mm. They are biological weapons, like things like this. These are direct quotes. And so it then becomes very easy, I think, for the state apparatus and then the private sector to basically be able to legitimize these tech incursions, particularly on groups that are already kind of tied to these problematic tropes. Mm. And so you know, it, I felt like for the first part of the pandemic, and I know maybe you felt the same, I felt like every day there was some sort of new tool that people were throwing out there, like mm. virus detecting drones and like, like, <laughs> 
won't work anyways. But like the idea that it's out there, yeah, it's it's just troubling because it's you know, I mean, I think to your audience this point is quite obvious, but to a lot of people it's not. Tech is not neutral, obviously. It's it's mm. way that, you know, power operates in society and, and it reinscribes those issues that we have um, already. And the concern is that the pandemic is going to accelerate a lot of the issues that we've been seeing. Mm. Mm. And uh, uh, so following up with, with a question for, for Kenya is basically, so you you describe yourself or you work in, in two fields, so in, in law in and in movie or film documentary. And um, I was I was going to ask you about the framing of the topic of surveillance in uh, the topic of surveillance in in a documentary. So we've seen these movies trying to address the issue of surveillance from the Snowden movies, the um, other documentary and um, fiction movies. And I was wondering, how do you see the like what what matters to you when you're trying to tell a story about surveillance who are the good guys who are the bad guys who are the the victims let's say in in your stories or in your framing i think you ask a really good question which is you know the the question that i've been asking myself and that we've been asking each other for you know months now sort of leading up to this and we'll continue asking each other which is you know what are we what are who who are we going to see on screen? What are we going to see on screen? How are we going to um, show something that can be very um, feel very cold because it's very difficult to visually represent things that that are that seem abstract and that's kind of like the lovely way this is framed, which is that you know you think about surveillance it's it's somewhat removed you can't really touch it mm. um, I think that you know that that makes Petra's work a little bit more difficult but it also makes <laughs> my work difficult because we're sort of thinking about okay well then how do we show that and I think you know Petra just touched on how this this issue is complicated by the fact that not all tech is bad um, but it, it can be biased, and so how does that bias show through? Well, it shows through by the way that folks are interacting with it as they move through these spaces. And so I think our, our job will be to, to, to tease out how we tell that story. And it's very, very early days, so I don't want to, uh, you know, say too much about, you know, what I, I imagine it can look like because we're just, we're not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. But I think at, at the heart of a story like this about surveillance is the people who are impacted by it and the folks who are pushing against it and um, the places it's bubbling up. And, and so we're, we're really thinking about things in broad brushstrokes in this moment in time um, with the hopes that it can be grounded in a lot of, of empathy and um, yeah, and, and, and people's genuine narratives. Mm. So, so one other question for, for you, Kenya. Do you think it's... Um, do you think the visuals or the, the ways these stories, not, not uh, the story you're, you're going to tell or you're now uh, in, in the process of producing, but generally stories about surveillance and, uh, and uh, the, 
the society where where surveillance plays an important role not only in the discussion around privacy but also in in let's say the the global political spectrum do you see those framings influencing the political and let's say legal debate around protections and uh, and um, other like solutions to to these uh, privacy related questions Look, sure. I, I mean, I think anytime you can provide an illustration that's rooted in, in truth to something that feels abstract, like, you know, policy or legal issues, it, it, it provides an anchor for folks to understand what's happening in, in a real way. We're human people. We connect best with other human people. And I think, you know, sometimes and this is why Petra and I are, are so passionate about working together, which is that we, we, we kind of riff off of each other and it's been a really great experience learning from each other because in a lot of ways I'm, you know, learning about the legal elements of, of what Petra's been working on for a few years now. Um, and she's helping me to think about the story elements in a different way. Um, and, and part of that is, is really wanting to take this like multimodal, multidisciplinary approach to to telling a narrative about, you know, we kind of see our work as one in the same in some ways. Um, and I think I think you're exactly right, which is the fact that stories like this one and telling these types of stories open people's eyes to what's happening in a different way that feels maybe maybe in some ways a bit more tangible um, because it's it's relatable, you know, you always try to tell a story that feels universal in its truth, right? Mm -hmm. Because we as humans can pull on themes that we can empathize with. And so that's, that I think is at the heart of every storyteller's journey, which is what is the universal truth here, the universal theme that, um, that people can understand. Mm. It's mm. not easy. I don't think it's easy work. But, no. um, but it, yeah, we're, we're trying to do that now. I, I was mentioning that because I, I'm often uh, reminded of the anecdote around the, the War Games movie that came out in 1980, 83, something like that. Matthew Broderick uh, and the, the role of the nuclear nuclear holocaust with, with computers. I'm often reminded of that movie because there's a story behind it saying that when uh, President Reagan uh, saw the movie, and he asked his advisors, you know, can can something like this really happen or is this just Hollywood? The advisors came back and said, you know, oh, Mr. President, it's much, much worse. So <laughs> I see the, the role of the and that sprung, you know, the whole uh, Reagan focus on on cyber defenses and the first uh, the first policies uh, related to the to the protection of digital networks and stuff. So I'm often trying to connect culture, politics, and the way they, they influence each other. Uh, back to Petra. Uh, so you, you've, you've mentioned, uh, you know, uh, testing grounds and, and technologies that are, that are then being integrated in, in more or less chaotic societies sp springing from, from these, uh, these refugee camps. And I was wondering if you could, if you could name a few of them now being used there and your thought on, on, on their applications as they stand in, in, uh, on Lesbos, in, in Moria and other places. 
Mm, yeah, that, that's a very good question because I think that brings us back to that idea that we have to have a systemic contextual understanding of this and the fact that, mm. like you say, these technologies migrate very easily from jurisdiction to jurisdiction or application to application. And, you know, I think on some level, it's actually even a, maybe a broader question about like how this is changing the administration of our society. Not to go down like a really boring legal rabbit hole of administrative decision making because that's really boring. Um, also <laughs> interesting, some of your listeners, um, the legal eagles out there. But I mean, you know, I think it's important to think about how decision making is impacted by tech as well and the kind of expectations that we have for each other and for, you know, the kind of processes that we go through, whether you look at, you know, this push in the West to digitize government services, for example, or, you know, import all sorts of automated decision making processes into a variety of, you know, ways that a person might interact with all sorts of services on a daily basis, right? Mm. Um, that's the kind of stuff we're seeing, you know, I think on some level, that's the like less sexy technology that people don't want to talk about, but it actually does impact people's lives in a really real way. Um, you know, all these algorithms are making decisions about our lives in so many ways that we're not even really aware of mm. and it becomes almost um, second nature that we now expect that this kind of algorithmic decision making is going to be used in all sorts of different ways that you interact kind of with the system and mm. maybe they're not the most kind of egregious examples like mandatory iris scanning or drones you know policing your every move but you know I think that in and of itself is becoming normalized as well there's some mm. really really groups here in Greece, like Homo Digitalis, they're working on tracking the use of drones by the Greek police, for example, and how that became normalized during the COVID pandemic as well, under the guise of COVID. There's also drones like flying around in Brussels, I remember hearing about that. You know, so I think it's about the normalization of these kind of surveillance technologies. Um, mm. And the fact that they might start in these testing grounds on the margins, at the border, places that are opaque, you know, where discretionary decision-making is the name of the game, but then they become kind of changed and, and used in ways that impact, you know, people who are walking about their day and, and filing an application for insurance or, or maybe they need welfare. Or even in the case of the UK, there was an algorithm that was, I think it was a pilot project. I don't recall if it was actually in use, but it was essentially for child protection. Um, I mean, that's hugely problematic. We can all imagine which communities will be discriminated against in a decision like that, right? Communities of color, maybe people with a criminal record. I mean, how are algorithms going to be making these decisions in a fair and transparent manner? Mm. And I know that that's not quite so much about surveillance, but I mean, maybe it is. Maybe we need a more broader understanding of surveillance because I, in my understanding, surveillance is a way that, you know, again, it's about power, it's about controlling people's movement and people's choices and your experience in the world. And, and that, to me, is also an example of this. Because mm. th this, this part about boring technology that is then being prevalent or omnipresent and you don't even see it is, again, one of the aspects uh, that the, the, the surveillance, let's say, society or surveillance culture is being able to spread so so quickly and so effectively, right? Because because nobody pays attention to to everything. On the same at the same time, you know these these technologies are so omnipresent that if you would have to pay uh, like attention to every single aspect of it, from let's say IoT to mobile apps to to network surveillance, you'd like 
you, you wouldn't be able to do that. And and my next question is exactly you know touching upon the the subject of this rational, uh, sensitive uh, and sensible individual that that is responsible for for basically everything, right? There's no. It, it almost seems like there's no uh, political representation behind it. In a way, we're all. I'm not gonna. This is this is extrapolating a bit, but we're all refugees be, because we don't have political representation revolving around our privacy, right? Uh, mm. Every every politician thinks this uh, tech is still cool. Uh, it's still like it was like 10 years ago, and and nobody nobody really bothers with with uh, with like taking them as the bad guys in a mm -hmm. way, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, on some level, maybe this is, again, it's a broad, broader conversation that we need to be having as societies, right? Because at the end of the day, it's also about world making and who gets to participate in the decisions in these collective decisions about how tech gets rolled out, what surveillance we're okay with, whether there should be any red lines or complete, you know, abolitionism of certain tech. Um, that has to be a collective conversation. But you're absolutely right. I mean, part of it is this move towards making the individual person responsible for all these decisions, right? And and also we see that with COVID, you know, not to belabor the point about the pandemic, but I think it's really instructive because, again, right, instead of um, governments really taking a strong kind of hardline approach to these things and, you know, providing resources and services, it's up to the individual to self-police, to police your community, to, you know, socially distance, do all that, right? Like, if we had a robust properly functioning healthcare system, you know, like maybe some of that responsibility wouldn't fall on the individual. And I mm. think it's the same with technology, right? Like you're absolutely right. It's impossible to keep on top of everything that's coming, whether you look at it from a privacy perspective or, you know, broader human rights perspective. And again, that's also coded along particular lines of experience. I mean, when you are homeless or when your child is being taken away from you or you've lost your house in a fire and you're not sure when you will get refugee protection. Surveillance is like the last thing on your mind, right? Mm, mm. I can't feed my child tomorrow or I can't wash my hands. Like, I don't give a shit about surveillance or drones. Mm. And I think that's part of the project too, right? It's it's this kind of, you know, superimposition of yet another set of issues that you have to deal with and another set of trauma that you have to maybe think through on top of an already difficult situation. I mean, maybe that's like the cynic in me or like a conspiracy theorist in me. <laughs> <laughs> that's why these tech you know, experiments are happening on these communities because, you know, I think the state apparatus knows that they don't have a lot of resources to devote just to like an intellectual conversation around like, well, how do I feel about technology? How do I feel about surveillance? Right. And that's, you know, to say that there's, of course, so much agency and so much, you know, incredible thinking around this stuff in the affected communities themselves. And that is something that we're obviously trying to foreground in our work as well which really isn't happening in this tech and human rights space sufficiently at all. It's mm. a lot of lawyers and policymakers and like tech people talking to each other or oftentimes past each other without actually talking to people that are affected and how they feel about it. Mm. So I don't say that people don't have opinions on this because of course they do. But I just mean that, again, when your frame of reference is such that your living situation is so precarious, um, surveillance is an afterthought, technology is an afterthought because it's not seen as an immediate danger to your life, right? Mm. So the problem mm. is it, it becomes this kind of systemic web that wraps around you and it actually ends up making your existence much more difficult without you necessarily even being aware of it. Mm. 
And, and at the same time, I see the debate going on either too early or too late, right? Because every time you try to foreshadow something or you try to address uh, an issue that it, that isn't, let's say, as threatening as other issues, people are saying, oh, you know, don't bother with this. This will happen. We don't know if this will happen in the future. Um, and at the same time, you know, if you're addressing it too late, everybody's saying, oh, yeah, but now what will you do about it? You know, you can't you can't really prevent this because this has been now, you know, everywhere. This is now omnipresent and there's no way of, of putting this genie back into the bottle. Mm -hmm. So so, so I, I often like echo my words in a way that that privacy activists have only two modes, right? We have the mode that we say no or that we say hell no, right? There's no meaningful discussion going on um, to to sort of predict or to preempt some bad things that are that are going to happen. And I was wondering if, if you see it the same way or I was wondering to I was curious to hear your thoughts on the on the value or the let's say the, the way this these uh, privacy and surveillance debates are going on. And do you think that they're going on, that they're constructed in the right way, or should we change the language and change the way we're we're talking about these things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, it's something that I definitely came across in my work as well when I first started looking at these issues of migration and tech, because mm. our first report, um, the Bots at the Gate report on Canada, you know, was criticized as being like, oh my God, you're fear-mongering, this isn't happening, you know, you're taking too much of a forward approach, like, it's just triaging visa applications, okay? Like, relax, right? So mm. it was this idea that, oh, you know, you're, you're looking way too far ahead on this. But then, lo and behold, things started happening that actually proved, you know, the kind of assertions that we were making in the report anyway. So it was like, well, you know, <laughs> yes. I don't be like, well, I told you so, but I told you so. so <laughs> It was really, it was a really interesting learning experience for me as well because at first I was very uncomfortable with being called like a fear monger because you know it's not a nice thing to be called, but it, I think it's good. I mean, I think we need to have a forward-looking approach to these issues, and that's where also the law is really insufficient in addressing this because inherently, at least in most legal traditions, right, law is very reactive. A human mm. rights violation happens and you deal with it and you, you try and address the bad situation that happened in the past, right? It's mm -hmm. very important for law to be forward thinking or creative or like dream making, right? It, it, it's not about that. It's about being retroactive, which is really mm. hard to do with technology that develops very quickly, that changes and where we need to have these broader conversations again around what kind of world do we want to live in? Mm. Are we with facial recognition becoming ubiquitous everywhere is that something that we want right like it's mm. these bro broader questions that we have to ask ourselves as well mm. and but some of those are they have to be forward-looking because like you said if, if we don't have them right now then it might be too late because it will just become part of our everyday life mm. and and who do you see not being represented in the current uh, discussions or in current debates around uh, the topics that we're discussing because I see a problem of, of not only uh, that this like technology and surveillance and uh, data is still being too focused on a very particular a very narrow group of people within uh, a society but also that these people have a very uniform way of, of looking at it and they're not taking into the accounts all the different 
nuances of of the problems um, if you if you um, paste it over a, a specific let's say a minority or a, or a group of people within the same society mm-hmm. yeah I mean that that's been one of the most challenging things I think you know being a relative newcomer to the tech space and coming you know from like the grassroots refugee organizing community I mean it's an incredibly white male space still mm. it um, and and I think people like that have been setting the agenda around what issues matter um, and what kind of what should be the priority of this particular um, area right a lot of it is centered around privacy and freedom of expression which are very important but they're not the be-all and end-all of the conversation that we need to be having mm-hmm. and I, again diversity in tech and diversity in tech critique is also really important just because also it, it will you know allow for really richer conversations to occur because when you have different people with different lived experience talking about their experiences with tech and also the way that maybe we need to critique it it will really add more richness to it I think it's changing slowly right but like a lot of the the kind of people in power that make decisions around how we should frame these issues are you know they come from a very particular group in society and mm. the other the other you know the voices really that are missing here are again of the affected communities and mm. NGOs and civil society that are working with people directly affected mm. um, it's hard to convey that to policymakers in Brussels right or or tech bros who are obsessed with you know some really really niche issue which yeah maybe is important but in the grand scheme of things you know how does how do the people who are actually at the forefront of this tech feeling about it and we seem to really be failing on that front um, and that's something that we're trying to change with our work as well you know to foreground the experiences of people who are on the move who are crossing borders who are either interacting directly with this technology or thinking about it just by virtue of their lived experience mm. and use that to inform the conversation and the policy making as a result you know mm. Mm. I, I so I mentioned before the I call it the coolness factor of of technology where uh, where politicians are in a way afraid of asking tough questions or or issuing or or enforcing some some set of effective rules on on the tech community or or tech owners in a way because they're afraid uh, the the voters will see that as you know oh these old people are trying to repress this beautiful new world of technology that enables the best of us in in every one of us um and i was just wondering if you if you see any um any you know uh, the, like the, the the end line of of this perception that Facebook, uh, Google, Amazon, and other other behemoths in these in this uh, in this area are losing their coolness in a way that they're not these these new kids on the block, but they're these old guys who try to you know put their hands on 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 everything they they see and uh, and uh, yeah they can see. Yeah, I mean, I think the conversation is slowly changing, right? More and more people are becoming aware of how these massive platforms are impacting our daily life and and how, you know, we really need to hold them to account. All the different companies that are implicated in, you know, all sorts of really, really problematic human rights abuses when it comes to, for example, Palantir, right? Mm -hmm. I I think more and more people are becoming aware of it, which is good. Um, And largely, I think, you know, that's also due to the rise of, 
new movies and films being made out of this, uh, about this and, and different, you know, ways of, of talking about these issues like podcasts. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it, it's getting people engaged and thinking about these issues in a broader way. Um, I, I do think I do think it's changing slowly, but I think the problem is, you know, there's big money um, associated with the development and deployment of tech, right? And mm-hmm. something kind of sexy about it, like, okay, well, you know, if, if we can land this contract, we're just going to reform whatever it is that you choose, whatever your pet issue is of the day, right? And and the states, I think also um, state entities, there is this obsession with this kind of like AI arms race, some scholars have called it, right? This kind of geopolitical movement that politicians seem to really want to capitalize on, right? Like digitize everything, AI everywhere, AI for good, which was mm. like, what does that mean, right? <laughs> Empty phrases, um, good for who? Like who gets to decide what good means? Um, mm. That's a whole other conversation for the next episode of your podcast. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that, that's another like um, hot topic. You know, uh, I'm trying from, from the position of, let's say, the activist or active citizen, I'm trying to to sort of reinvent my role as well, right? Because because the the way I see it is that that in um, if you become like this the declarative critic of of technology and AI and all the all the black boxes that are coming out of of Silicon Valley and other places, then people perceive you as oh he'll have our back when when this uh, shit hits the fan, right? So you have a you you suddenly play a role in a society that you don't necessarily want to play because you know if you like then i ask myself okay what if i miss something right the responsibility of digital activists being put on uh, from from let's say a um, um, a general society is i think too much in a way because we can't be you know the sole line of defense against silicon valley and lobbyists and even politicians that are supposed to be representing our interests but are actually doing everything else but that right so so how do we like maybe some tips from from both of you you know how do we um how do we even out the the battleground and how do we spread this fight that it won't be just on me you and and uh, kenya right uh, to to do our job and and uh, and uh, help out uh, with the general population being able to fight back yeah yeah i mean i think part of it is maybe maybe there's two things right there is the exposure to issues and and education right like getting more people involved to think about these issues from a real context specific perspective i think helps right because it you can ground these really abstract ideas in in real world examples and get people thinking right like the regular kind of person who uses Facebook who maybe wants to read up a little bit about the algorithm and then like you know I think there's a way to to start having these conversations on a deeper level across different sectors of of society but the Mm -hmm. other I think is also education you know making sure for example that policymakers and lawyers and human rights advocates are well versed enough in tech that they can critique it and tease it apart and think about it and vice versa, that engineers and data scientists and then also people, you know, who are developing this technology are trained and, and taught to think both maybe from a human rights perspective or from, you know, all sorts of different other methodologies that foreground, you know, again, people's lived experience and even just openness, openness to discourse, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is something that I, I find really weird about this space, 
we we've been operating in these silos, right? And like I was guilty of it too, you know, as a, a frontline immigration practitioner, I didn't really think about tech because I felt like it wasn't impacting me and the community I was working with, right? Like mm. when the person you're working with is getting deported tomorrow, you're like, oh, let me think about automated decision making. No, you're <laughs> like dealing with like a real crisis, right? But I think mm. we've put our head in the sand as well, and I think it's incumbent upon the human rights NGO civil society space to you know, start thinking about these issues. It's a capacity problem as well, right? Because when you're constantly under-resourced and overworked, like I said, it's the last thing on your mind, but that's what we're trying to do as well, right? To bring people together to start talking about these issues. Mm. But then first up, people on the private sector side, you know, I mean, again, they've been living in this bubble of privilege where for them it's this like fun testing ground, like, oh yeah, innovation, we get to play around with this and then it gets sent off and utilized in an application, but they don't actually see it, right? Mm. And sometimes when, you know, I talk to like the private sector or if I'm giving a talk or something, I like to be a bit of a shit disturber. So I go around the room <laughs> like, okay, like who's a policymaker? A couple hands go up maybe. Who's an engineer? A couple hands go up. Who's ever been to a refugee camp? Usually just my hand goes up, right? And it's mm. not to make anyone feel bad about their particular set of experiences, but it's just to highlight that, you know, the tech you're developing might be used in a space like a refugee camp or a court of law or a situation where families ripped apart due to really dubious algorithms for child protection. So mm. it's not this like fun, theoretical, objective exercise of developing these models or algorithms or tools, but they're mm. actually used and hurt people in real ways. And so you can't abdicate your responsibility as the private sector anymore. Mm. So I think bringing people together and talking across different disciplinary lines, different lived experience, I think that's really helpful. Mm. And and one final uh, question or round of, of questions um, before we wrap it up. Uh, how do you see the, the difference or how do you see the role of self-regulation and regulation? There has been a lot of talk recently about, you know, AI ethics and uh, this moral code that the industry should should subscribe to. And, and my guess is that they're only trying this now because they're realizing the pressure from the regulative side of, of the political specter is becoming in a way too hot to handle, right? And they're trying to preempt them by saying, oh, no, 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 we will regulate ourselves. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to force us into doing anything too drastic. We'll, we'll handle ourselves. And if you, if you take a look in, in the history of self and self-regulation and regulation, be it car industry or other industrial industrial complexes you see that the self-regulation was all was always a bit of a white lie in a way that the industry knew something bad is going to happen to their bottom line and they were trying to say oh no 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 look here is the wonderful self-regulatory things that we're doing while in fact you know nothing was being done effectively do you mm. see that similar thing happening in the like the you know, we've recently had hearings from from Facebook and other giants. There is now a, a talk about regulate uh, regulating the the, um, the internet industry in EU as well. And I'm just yeah curious to hear your thoughts. Mm, yeah, the ethics washing of this space. <laughs> yeah, I mean that probably gives away how I feel about it. I mean, <laughs> I I'm a very reluctant lawyer, but I'm still a lawyer, and so for me, ethics don't go far enough in this space. I mean, mm. we really to think about it from a legal perspective and a regulatory perspective because yeah I mean I think people are going to get away with all sorts of things and then just couch it under some sort of dubious like morality or ethics claim and 
and well, you know, we'll just police ourselves. Well, we all know how well that works, right? When you look mm. at the private sector. Um, again, I mean, I think there are more and more conversations happening around like regulation and what that could look like and whether, you know, we need, for example, like red lines around certain use of tech, like in Europe, right? Like facial recognition bans and things like that are, are constantly being talked about. Um, I don't think ethics go far enough, frankly, because with ethics, you don't need to think about your responsibilities when things go wrong, mm. right? Like, there is no necessarily a mechanism of redress. Whereas when you start talking about rights and responsibilities, you have to think about like, well, when something goes wrong, what do you do about it? How do you repair things? How do you give people a meaningful ability to have their case heard? Mm. You know, and, and I think, you know, yeah, the private sector doesn't want that because then they will be liable for all the crazy stuff that's happening, right? Mm much easier to couch it in terms of ethics as opposed to rights because mm. rights make people uncomfortable because rights imply responsibilities mm. Mm. that's right okay um we'll we'll wrap it up at, at this point unless we forgot to touch about uh, to talk about something that you you really feel it's important in line of uh, the discussion we were we were having um i'm uh, looking forward to to seeing your your documentary and uh, we'll surely um, talk with you or, or contact you in some other time discussing the same things that uh, just don't uh, don't want to go away I guess it seems yeah yeah I think we have our work cut out for us so thank you so much for for the opportunity to share what we've been doing here and I look forward to future opportunities to talk about it yes thank you both again and uh, talk to you soon